Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Last week, we worked our way out of chapter 1, and in doing so, we saw that Paul began moving us out of the realm of self-centeredness into the realm of others-centered living, which is only right. Because chapter 2, Paul is going to billboard Jesus Christ for us. And the life of Jesus was a life that was for others. We're going to unpack a passage that absolutely epitomizes everything that we sang tonight. Why Jesus is the king forever. Why his name is above every name. Why he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. And so Paul in the second chapter is going to show us Jesus His humility, his obedience, his submission, his service. And in the second chapter, like-mindedness is Paul's goal. Will you turn me down a little bit, Derek? Like-mindedness is his goal. He wants these believers thinking alike. Why? Because there was a threat to the church at Philippi. It wasn't doctrinal in nature. Right? We've already talked about this. Paul wasn't swinging the heresy hammer at the Philippians. But there was a threat to the church at Philippi. Have I introduced us to Iodia and Syntyche yet? If you have your Bible, turn over to chapter 4. It's just a page. Unless you have like large print and maybe like two or three pages. Chapter 4, verse 2. These two sisters were at the center of some of the relational fuss that was going on at the church of Philippi. And Paul says to Iodia and Syntyche, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, Iodia, her name is sweet fragrance, okay? Syntyche, her name means good fortune, okay? So the pleasant aroma and the harmony that, that marked the life of Jesus was being replaced with the stench of disunity and the atmosphere of dis. Harmony. Paul saw the budding, the budding evidence of, of disunity and disharmony coming into the church. And Paul knew the quickest way to, to stamp out disunity is to point people back to Jesus. The source of all genuine and true unity and harmony. And what harmony is he calling them to? Philippians chapter 2. The life, the nature, the character of Jesus Christ. So you can, you can flip back to chapter 2. And we're going to start there in verse 5 and then work our way backwards. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. Some translations might render it. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude is he talking about? What mind? Verses 2 through 4. But we'll start there in verse 1. We, we just touched on verse 1 last week. Therefore, 2-1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by. Okay, verse 1, don't read those ifs as questions. Read them as conclusions. If you're here last week, we, we walked around and we asked the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any consolation of love? Is there any affection and compassion and fellowship of the Spirit? And of course, the answer was yes, there is. There are all of those things in Christ. And so read those as, since this is true, 
Since all of these things are accurate and real and true, verse 2, Paul says, make my joy complete. Well, how do we do that, Paul? How do we make your joy complete? Verse 2, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, so we're going to see some marks of genuine biblical community and unity and harmony and like-mindedness here. Paul is saying, listen, make sure you're thinking the same thing, okay? The same mind. Make sure you're on the same page that you're in agreement. This is only possible because those of us who have confessed Christ as Lord have, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, received the very mind of Christ. If you are a Christian, you have received the mind of Christ. I've heard a lot of different definitions of what that means. The best one I've ever, I've ever heard is intelligence fueled by love. We have the ability, because we have the mind of Christ, to think Christianly in the presence of love. Aside, when a thought comes into your mind that is inconsistent with the nature and character of Jesus, you can reject that as not coming from you. The mind of Christ does not generate thoughts that are inconsistent with who you are in Christ. Those are flaming arrows of the evil one. And you can take that thought captive, 1 Corinthians 10, offer it up to Jesus and say, that's not for me. I didn't generate that. That's from the enemy. You can take that to the bank. So many of us think things and we think that we generated and thought it and then we beat ourselves up. And I'm confessing and offering that those just very well may be sown by an enemy. We have the mind of Christ. And so he says, I want you to think same. I want you to be in agreement here. And what does he say next? When you're on the same page, when you're thinking in agreement, we will willingly express the same love towards one another. He says in verse 2, maintaining the same love. Well, what, what, what love is he talking about? He's talking about the love of God that has been shed in our hearts, Romans chapter 5. Somebody tell me something about the love of God that stands out to them. It's what? Unconditional. The love of God needs no because. Our love needs a because, doesn't it? If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The love of God needed no because. The love of God compelled God to move in our direction. What else? The love of God. Relentless. How many times have we given up on chasing after somebody? Yeah, you, yeah. relentless. You keep loving him, her them, whoever they are. Maintain the same love. And so when we have the same mind, when we maintain the same love, when this kind of atmosphere exists in our fellowship, the prevailing spirit will be one of cooperation, one that moves towards the same purpose. See, these are connected. A passion for unity in spirit moves us collectively towards a passion in purpose. So what does it mean to be united in spirit? What do you hear in that phrase, be united in spirit? Being joined together. You mean regardless of race, color, economic status? I think we need, to, we need to major more on what we have in common in the spirit of Christ than what we have different among ourselves. Black, yellow, purple, blue. There's supposed to be a second line to that song, but I don't remember it from kids' school. Amy, do you remember it? Yeah? Okay, good. You sang it today. I don't remember it. I got saved at 18, so it's not my fault. I miss Bible man, Chris Tom. No, Chris Tom was in. Stephen Curtis Chapman, never. <laughs> Veggie Tales, no, got saved after all of them. Be of the same mind. 
maintain the same love, united in spirit. And when we are, we will move in the same direction, intent on the same purpose. And what is the one purpose? There's lots of answers, but I, I think it's advancing God's agenda. Seeing dead people come to life in Christ. Have this attitude, verse 5, this mind in you that was in Christ. Which attitude, which mind? Verse 2, thinking in concert, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When we have this attitude, we will likewise, verse 3, do nothing from, stop, stop. Whatever Paul's about to say next, after these three words, can never ever be a motivating factor for those of us that belong to Jesus Christ. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from these two motives, selfishness or empty conceit. If you remember back in chapter one, selfish ambition is what drove the preachers who filled the gap when Paul went to jail. Remember these guys? They showed up and they were preaching from selfish ambition. They were more concerned with their own glory than Jesus's. I think that's why Paul ties selfish ambition and empty conceit together. Empty conceit, the King James, I love it. It renders that word vain glory. It's a compound word in the Greek. The first word means empty or hollow. The second word is doxa, and it means glory. He's talking about empty self-exaltation. See, empty conceit is glory that doesn't lead anywhere because it's rooted in that which isn't praiseworthy. One translator says empty conceit is one's vain opinion of themselves. The idea seems to be an an overinflated self-esteem. Anybody have one of those? We try to pump up everybody's self-esteem these days. Listen, the issue isn't a self. We always have a self. The issue is, do you have a self-centered self or a Christ-centered self? Paul's calling us to be conscious of Jesus, not of ourself. And so he says, selfish ambition. He says, empty conceit. They are never to be a motive force in our lives. The, the, The desire to honor ourselves to attract attention, to win praise, to make ourselves seem more important than we really are. Come on, we're all guilty of it. I mean, be real. Who in the course of their day doesn't in some respect find themselves fighting the urge to display themselves, to commend themselves, to excel at something and receive commendation for whatever they might be good at? I mean, we're all guilty of it. Question, why do you think there is a tendency to promote ourselves like that. It's just me, huh? (laughs) What's that? To win approval. approval. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. What's that? We need validation. Oh, man. You're right. We do. But oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us if we could learn to get our amen from our heavenly father. Jesus never operated from this, from these motives. Paul's trying to tell us there is a deeper place in you. And what's that deeper place? Second half of verse three. But with humility of mind, whose mind? The mind of Christ. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, any, any, any Greek historians here? 
humility was not a highly regarded concept in the Greek mind. If you were Greek, the last thing you ever wanted to be was humble because they connected humility with submission, subjugation, with servanthood and slavery. And so it was something that they eschewed. Yet humility is one of the chief characteristics of the Son of God seen clearly in the second half of our passage tonight. And what is humility anyway? You've, you've probably heard this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We don't have to get down on ourselves. We just have to be conscious of Jesus. And Jesus was always conscious of others. How do we do this? What are some ways as a believer that we can, verse 3, regard one another as more important than ourselves? What are some practical ways that we do this? Forget practical. What are some philosophical ways that we can do this? How can we begin to do this? And stop trying to validate ourselves by making ourselves more important. Serve. Okay. Start serving people. Let's take it back a step further. What do you need to believe? What do you need to believe so that you can begin to regard one another as more important than yourselves? There's, thank you, absolutely. He said, you need to believe that you already have everything that you need. Maybe you need to camp out in Philippians 4.19. Throw it up on the screen. And my God shall meet your needs faithfully according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I say it at least once every other week. If you believe, I mean really believe that God has you covered and is meeting your needs, not your greeds, but your needs faithfully, you can step in that room and pick up a towel and give your life away to one another, serving people. You can step in a room looking with love instead of for love, for validation. This humility of mind, it's a belief that expresses itself in action. And it's not necessarily a feeling. It makes the choice to regard one another as more important than themselves. This, this was a hinge verse of the methodology that we practice when we are on the campus of USF doing church planning and doing intentional evangelism. I may even call you up and make you walk through it with me. But we would go up to people and we would say, hey, my name's Cameron. What's your name? Aaron. Hey, Aaron, I'm a Christian at... First Baptist Orlando, uh, what, are you, what are you going to school here for? Where were you born? Do you have any brothers and sisters? What do you like to do in your spare time? And for the next like 30 minutes, we would just regard them as more important than myself. I made it clear I'm a Christian and then I'm just going to ask them questions. Can I tell you, I have seen walls come down and doors that were cracked open wide because people's favorite subject is themselves. <laughs> And yes, we wanted to introduce them to Jesus, but we really wanted to hear their story. Fail safe. I hadn't had a door shut on my face, except for those doors where I couldn't speak Spanish. And it was like, all right, this isn't working. We call it Rock in Philippians 3. And we learn to esteem and regard one another as more important than ourselves. Because I know that my needs are being met in Christ Jesus. I can do that with one another. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, if Paul stopped in verse 3 and didn't go to verse 4, then it seems like our lives would just revolve around meeting other people's needs. But that's not where he stops. He says, do not merely 
or only look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. He acknowledges that we're at least to be conscious of ourselves, right? But that can't be the deepest place that we go. The self-centeredness that only considers our own rights, our own plans, our own pursuits, it must be replaced by a broader outlook that includes the interests of others, especially those in the community that God has placed around you. And when each member of the Christian community exercises this mutual concern, Paul says that the problem of disunity, then it quickly disappears. Question. It's an important diagnostic question. What happens when we fail to be conscious of our own needs, though? What happens when we're not concerned at all with ourselves and we're just meeting other people's needs 24-7, 365? What's that? Burnout? Get drought? Resentment? Come a walking doormat, maybe? It's important that we are getting our needs met. But again, this isn't some perpetual self-reflection, staring in at our belly button, kind of pious, only worried about myself. This is, I think, Philippians 4.19. Doing commerce with our justification, seeing our needs met in Jesus, believing that, reminding ourselves of that, speaking to our soul like the Psalms tell us. So why are you downcast? Don't you know that your needs are met in Jesus Christ? That's that kind of diagnostics that we need to be running on ourselves. Because when we're reminded our needs are met in Jesus, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we have received everything pertaining to life and godliness. Then we can meet other people's needs. I think it's really hard for us to think of others at times because we spent so many years fighting to make sure our needs were met. It's hard to stop. It's hard to stop doing that and believe that Jesus Christ has committed, God has committed to completing the work in our lives. And so why these things, meeting other people's needs, thinking of other people, regarding one another more important than ourselves, why they may go against some of our natural tendencies, they're right in line with the new creation life we've received in Christ. Because remember, that's what we're talking about. You have received the very life of Christ. These are the marks of like-mindedness. These are the marks of genuine humility and unity and service and submission. This is what we received in Christ. Have this attitude. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So verses 2, 3, and 4 are the marks of like-minded unity. Verses 5 through 11 is where those marks find their source and their supply. This is where they find their ultimate expression. And so we could, we could rephrase or translate verse 5 to say this. This attitude, this mind must always be finding accurate expression in and through you. Which attitude? 2 through 4. What expression? 6, 7, and 8. Okay, this is about to get deep. Verse 6. Who? Speaking of Jesus. Although he existed... In the Greek, that's present tense, so let's say exists. Who, although he exists, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Stop there. This is perhaps one of the most important and doctrinally rich New Testament passages on the deity of Christ. 
Scholars call this the kenosis passage, that word Greek in kenosis is, is empty or to empty yourself. Speaking of the emptying of the Son of God as he became incarnate in humanity. Okay, so let me tackle some of the grammatical scholarly stuff really quick. The Greek word translated form there in verse 6. Form, although he existed in the form of God. It's not talking about a shape. It's not talking about an object. But it's a philosophical term that refers to the outward expression a person gives of his innermost nature. Jesus was in the form of God. Now, the word God here, it does not have the definite article in the Greek, which refers to the divine essence. Not God the Father, God the Trinity, but the essence of divinity. I know, it's kind of deep, but stay with me. Paul is saying our Lord's outward expression of his innermost being was as to its nature, the expression of the divine essence of deity. Before coming to earth as a human baby, Jesus gave expression within the Trinity of his essential nature, God. Jesus is God. He's not a God. He's not some lower form of God. He is God, God the Son. There's never been a time where Jesus was not God. And so the mystery of the incarnation, God coming in human flesh, is that Jesus didn't give up his essential nature, that of deity. This is important because when we look at verse 7 and we speak of Jesus emptying himself, we'll see that it wasn't his possession of deity, but his expression of the divine essence. Listen, when you're God, you never cease to be God. You can't be something else. And as God, Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality. He's talking about Jesus's co-participation with the other members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're being told that Jesus did not regard equality, that same status at that moment, a thing to be grasped. That word grasp, it means two things. It either means a thing that is unlawfully seized or it means a treasure to be clutched and retained at all costs. In light of the context, the second meaning fits best. Guys, Jesus did not consider the expression of his divine essence such a treasure that it should be retained at any cost. Jesus was willing to waive his right to that expression. He was willing if the need arose. He was willing if there were no other choices or any other options. Why was he willing to lay aside his godly and divine prerogatives? Because love compelled him to. Love compelled him to lay down his rights and all of the trappings of the glory and take on humanity. Look back at verse 7. There's a rule of Greek grammar that applies here. It modifies how we read the passage. It means that the act of taking preceded the act of emptying. That means the act of taking upon himself the form of a servant came before and was the cause of Jesus emptying. Guys, the one who was existing in the form of God took on the form of a servant. And that word form here is the same form from back in verse 6, talking about the outward expression of an inner nature. See, the form of God could not be relinquished. God is always God. And so in verse 6, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state expressing himself as deity. But in verse 7, man, he expresses himself in the incarnation as a servant. He exchanges one form of expression for the other. He emptied himself. 
Again, he didn't empty himself of deity. This is important. Rather, he set aside his godly prerogatives, his rights to deity so that he could serve. Listen, the basic nature and the desire and right of a deity is that of being glorified. God deserves glory because he is God. He is the highest and most supreme being, perfect righteousness, truth, and justice. It is not wrong for God to desire glory. It's right and it's true. But the nature of deity, joining itself to humanity in union here in the person of Jesus is not a life that demanded glory, but it was a life that poured itself out in expression for others. I I, I need you to see the downward trajectory here, okay? God the Son, second person of the Trinity, right? From the throne of heaven's heights comes down, okay? And he takes upon himself the frailties of humanity and he goes even lower, taking upon himself the form and posture of a servant. Jesus voluntarily chose self-expenditure over self-acquisition. This is God here coming low. And if humanity wasn't low enough, if slavery and servanthood wasn't low enough, he went lower still. Verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God himself humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. Guys, this is the life This is the life that has come and taken permanent residence inside of us. This is the life that has now become the very source of our life. Paul says in 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what he meant. For me, it's it's Jesus and Jesus is a life that went lower and lower. And guys, God intends us to express the family nature, not just study about it, discuss it, not just sing about it. And since the essence of God's nature is a life for others, we will come to know God most intimately when we're willing to get out of the messiness of life and enter into the fray with one another and pick up a towel to go low and to wash feet. This is who we are now. Question is, do our lives reflect this nature? You want true significance and value? You want success and meaning? It's found in going low. So the point of this passage is not necessarily a defense for the deity of Jesus, though it is and it teaches that, but rather this is to enforce upon us the duty of humility by taking us to the highest example ever furnished of going low. God left a state of inexpressible glory and he took upon himself the most humble form of humanity and he performed the most lowly office that he might redeem us from sin and death. Philippians 2 verse 9 says this, for this reason also, which reason? Jesus' obedience, obedience to the point of death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, Jesus Christ is Lord was the first creed the church ever had. 
To be a Christian was to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say that, we mean that for us, Jesus Christ is unique and that we are prepared to give him an obedience that we are prepared to give to no one else. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. And whether they like it or not, all, all of creation will one day pay this same homage to Jesus Christ. Whether joyfully and triumphantly, or through despair and through rage. This picture of Christ's humiliation and subsequent exaltation, it was intended by Paul to encourage in his readers an attitude of Christ-like humility. If they were to be identified as Christ's followers, then they must demonstrate these characteristics. And the appeal, however, it wasn't only to a life of lowliness and hardship, but it contained the reminder that victory, victory followed this humiliation and that God's glory would ultimately prevail. The first time divinity joined itself to humanity, we called that person Jesus Christ and he came lower and lower to serve us. The next time that divinity joined itself to humanity, we call that the church of Jesus Christ. You and me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this is the life that we have been called to and the life that we have been equipped to live out. And I promise you, this life is extremely attractive to the world we live in, to the people that you work with, and the people that you run with, and the people that don't have a narrative of self-sacrifice and other-centeredness and submission and service. This is the life of Christ that wants to find expression in you and in me. And so as Christ followers, we are called to a life that reflects the posture associated with the confession that Jesus is Lord. And what do those people look like? How do they act? How do they speak? They move in the direction of one another. Verses two through four, they go lower still, all the way down. So the next time you have somebody unlovable in your life, lower still. Philippians chapter two, Jesus, how low do I have to go? Jesus went all the way down so that one day he could lift us all the way up. Colossians 3, when Christ who is our life appears, we will appear with him in glory. 1 Peter 5, submit to God and in the right time he will exalt you. This is the life of Christ that we have been called to, the life that was modeled for us and now the life that desires to find expression in and through you. Pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for this picture. God, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea of God. God himself coming and wrapping himself in human flesh and living a perfect death, a perfect life and, and dying a sinner's death and experiencing the agony of loss, loss of fellowship with you, God, of torture and crucifixion. And yet, Jesus, you willingly went voluntarily so that you could purchase us, redeem us, reconcile us with the one true God who created us. Thank you that we have now been called and equipped with that same life. 
that is called to die for one another, not an atoning sacrifice, but to die to self so that we can serve one another. Thank you for a heavy word, Jesus. Thank you for an example that we can't emulate, but an example that we can receive and learn to give expression to. Jesus, would you show us this week who we need to go lower for? Whether it's someone at work, whether it's someone in our family, whether it's someone in this room, so that we can learn to express your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.